A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The fastest growing disease in Britain is dementia. Nearly a million people in this country have it, and we're ageing so that number will only rise. Seeing this coming, the government promised a dementia moonshot to blast us towards a dementia cure. So much for a dementia moonshot. It's fizzled out, certainly. What COVID has showed us is that science can make a huge difference. What would be a tragedy is if we threw all that away? So why has there been so little progress on dementia compared to other conditions? Well, we threw the kitchen sink at COVID, so could that work for this disease too? And we'll be hearing from the former PM in a rare interview with the Sunday Times. Why were you so passionate about it? Well, I didn't, at that time, I didn't have a sort of family interest in it. Actually, subsequently, the political has become more personal. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, dementia. Could the lessons from COVID help find a cure? Today's story begins with a fellow journalist. My name's Willie Gilder. I was a local radio reporter working in Northamptonshire. Willie worked for BBC Radio. An emergency incident that's occurring in Northamptonshire. Willie Gilder has the latest details. Willie, what's happened? Uh, yes, Stuart. Um, news of this is still rather patchy, but um, we're hearing reports of a major incident. Zapping around the county, being called out at midnight to the fires, reporting on the sad demise of Northamptonshire County Council, generally getting stuck into the local area and having a good time. I now have early-stage atypical Alzheimer's disease. Let's talk about what led up to the diagnosis. Presumably there were symptoms. Take me through it. Well, it, it's very intriguing, actually. Um, I was first diagnosed with depression. The problem is I didn't get better. And no matter what antidepressants got thrown at me, nothing seemed to shift my mood I didn't really understand quite what was going on. And I would say to the uh, psych consultant psychiatrist, look, I think there's something organically wrong. I don't know whether it's dementia or what it is, but I think there's something up. And they would say, well, no, that's just not possible. You're, you're, you're too young. And that conversation went on and on and on and round and round and round in circles. And to cut a very long story short, this this was in, in Northamptonshire. I moved up to Edinburgh to be in close to my son who lives up here. And the new consultant psychiatrist who I came across said, well, it's an intriguing set of symptoms you have. At least we could send you for a CT scan. And that showed a degree of atrophy in my brain. It means my brain shrunk a bit. Willie is 68. He was diagnosed with Alzheimer's last April. 
my episodic memory is okay. I mean, I know what happened last week. You know, I can remember things that happened in my life. I don't have particular problems with that. I have difficulties with my eyesight. Do you wear glasses? I do. So if you can imagine that you've got a bit of dirt on your specs, I have that in my left field of vision all the time. Mm. So what I'm seeing is generated by my brain rather than by my eyesight. I was just kind of getting used to that idea, which was pretty odd, because if you can't trust your eyes, what can you trust? When I had a shower and looked down, and the whole shower stall seemed to be covered in hair. Mm. Um, And that was a strange illusion which stays with me. What I don't know and what nobody can tell me is, will my disease get worse over the next 12 months? Will I coast along on a plateau? That's a great unknown. And, And that's, I think, a trying part of this illness, really, because slowly but surely, the little rodent inside my head will be nibbling up more neurons and I don't quite know how greedy it is and at what speed it's going to, going to eat and what it's going to want to eat next. You and I are almost exactly the same age and do a similar job, so I feel points of identification very strongly. And I imagine, having been a journalist, you do a lot of research into this and a lot of your own search. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, read a few books. Yeah, is it right that all you've really discovered is that you don't know, or have you found out more than that? No, I think the fact is we don't know. And we're talking about an illness that has stages of degeneration. I know quite a lot of people now with dementia, and I know people at different stages. And I worry about redressing. I think in particular I have a fear about losing my ability to speak because that's how I I used to make my living. Also kind of an essence of who one is. It kind of does make me want to do everything I can now because I'm not going to get the retirement that I once thought I was going to have. Uh, Life is for living. Lots of us have friends and family in Willie Gilder's situation and, frankly, any day he could be me. So what's the state of our knowledge on how to cure dementia? I'm Ben Spencer. I'm the science editor of the Sunday Times. I've been writing about health and science for just over a decade now. Let's get straight into this. Ben, what is dementia as best we understand it? So dementia is a group of conditions, a group of diseases which attack the brain. People in the past thought of it as going senile or losing your marbles. You know, it was seen as an inevitable part of ageing. But that's not what it is. It's a disease as much as heart disease or cancer is a medical problem. Therefore, you'd think it's something that we can treat or cure. But with dementia, there is no cure. There is nothing to slow down the course of the disease. Now, what I'm imagining is that... With the advent of imaging machines and so on, we can actually begin to see something happening in the brain. Is that how the science has developed? Yes, broadly that's right. It isn't just one disease. It's an umbrella term, really. And each of these conditions works in different ways. I mean, Alzheimer's, which is the most common and well-known of the dementias, works when 
toxins or proteins attack the cells in the brain. Frontotemporal dementia attacks the foremost part of the brain that affects emotion, whereas Alzheimer's is more associated with memory. And then you have vascular dementia or dementia with Lewy bodies. There's a wide range of these diseases which are grouped together under the term dementia. So there are a number of different things that we call dementia. I mean, I know somebody who suffered very badly from vascular dementia. Yeah, that's right. And as as I say, they, they come with very differing um, symptoms. So the first sign of Alzheimer's, which tends to hit, you know, in, in the 70s, 80s, but can strike earlier, while there's nothing inevitable about dementia, the risk for dementia goes up the older you are. The first sign of that is usually people beginning to become forgetful. But frontotemporal dementia is more likely to strike in kind of late middle age. And one of the first signs is personality change. In fact, when people look back at patients with frontotemporal dementia, the the first clue is often actually marriage breakdown, Hmm. you know, midlife crisis. So these diseases strike in very different ways. Now, I have some direct experience in my wife's family, uh, a much-loved aunt of my wife's had dementia. She couldn't form a memory, short-term memory at all. She, after a while, did not know where she was, had to ask every uh, every 30 seconds, every minute, and was constantly frightened. Do you have any similar experiences? Yes, and uh, I mean, the thing is with dementia is it differs hugely person to person. So it could be two cells away and affect someone in a different way. You could be talking about the part of the brain that deals with memory, or you could be dealing with the part of the brain that deals with personality and emotion. We just know so little about the brain that it's very complicated for scientists to work out what's going on. And we're only just beginning to really understand that now. Let's roll back now because you'd been looking at Alzheimer's for about a decade. That takes us back to about uh, 2012. There was a period I seem to remember towards the beginning of that time when there was a lot of stories about breakthrough. Neuroscientists at the University of Queensland have made a major breakthrough in the fight against dementia. We're on the verge of cures and so on. Today, a potentially promising new treatment for Alzheimer's disease. It appears to reverse signs of the disease in the brain. Can you take me through the hope and the hype of those years, and then we'll go on to what actually happened? Yeah, so in around 2014, 2015, there was a number of drugs companies were each pursuing a group of drugs called monoclonal antibodies, which were thought to clear a toxin in the brain called amyloid. And this was a protein that creates toxic plaques which clog up the brain. So plaque is a bit like that thing you get on your teeth. It's a kind of conglomeration, a sticking together of cells. Yeah, that's right. A sticky substance which clogs up the brain. Several drugs companies had created these monoclonal antibodies which would clear away this plaque. The theory was if you cleared away the plaque, then the decline could be halted, slowed, maybe even reversed. 
big companies like Eli Lilly, like Pfizer, like Roche, the world's biggest drugs companies, were all pursuing these monoclonal antibodies. A second study out from Indianapolis-based Eli Lilly shows promise in the fight. The name of the drug we've been studying is solanezumab. And they had phase three trials involving thousands of patients, billions and billions of dollars worth of investment. And um, and none of them worked. Really? None of them worked. In about 2017, the first drug trials announced. And I remember I went down to Eli Lilly's lab in Surrey, and we knew the results were coming, but even they didn't know when. And everyone was very excited. You know, this could be a massive breakthrough. And the very next day, Eli Lilly had to announce to the stock market that the drug hadn't worked. It cleared away the amyloid, but in a randomized control study where half the patients received a dummy placebo and half the patients received this drug called solanezumab, there was no difference in the decline in cognitive function. And that was devastating. Pfizer, for example, pulled out of neurological uh, research altogether because you just couldn't see any future in it. And it, it had a real impact across the whole of dementia research. Now, let me understand this properly. What had happened was the amyloid plaques were cleared by the drug, but that had no impact upon the symptoms of dementia. Did that mean that they no longer believed that the amyloid plaques were the cause of dementia? So a lot of people said that, yeah. There's different theories. Some scientists said the amyloid hypothesis just doesn't work. It's not true. This had been a theory, a UCL professor, John Hardy, had come up with this idea. It's called the amyloid precursor protein. He had traced it through a family who all had Alzheimer's. The story really got going, perhaps, when we found amyloid mutations in a family from Britain. And that started to put the disease in an order. It started to say that amyloid was where the disease, at least in those families, started. And this had been pretty well established, which is why all these companies were going after the same kind of drug. But all these failures really knocked that hypothesis. Now, most dementia scientists say the amyloid hypothesis is correct. There's a number of things going on. One is it probably wasn't given early enough. Well, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. These drugs were given to patients with mild Alzheimer's. Scientists now think that's too late. You need to give it 20 years before. But the problem then is, how do you identify patients 20 years before they develop Alzheimer's, that they're at risk? Were there side effects to solanetsumab? Yes, with solanetsumab, yes. And some of the others that came later had even worse side effects. So there was a catch-22 there. They discovered that this particular drug might work if you gave it much earlier to people you wouldn't yet know had Alzheimer's or had dementia, but the problem being that it might have side effects, so actually you couldn't give it to them. Yes, the problem is, even if someone's at risk, how will you know how severe the disease will get? But you can't hand it out like statins, for example. We know statins, or we think we know that statins don't have big side effects in lowering cholesterol. So you can pretty much prescribe them in advance to people and not worry about what happens. But these drugs are not like that. 
quite. And there's also statins cost less than £20 a year. With these drugs, you're talking tens of thousands of pounds a year. Yeah, that's quite a difference. (laughs) Coming up, why, after all that disappointment, there might still be hope. And Ben speaks to the former Prime Minister, David Cameron. But first... I'm Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So the magic of the mid-teens turned into disappointment. Now, this is interesting because it also happens, doesn't it, coincidentally, with really big push on it by governments, not least our own government, and David Cameron. That's right. So in March 2012, David Cameron gave this phenomenal speech. One of the great challenges of our time is what I would call the quiet crisis one that steals lives and tears at the hearts of our families. This is simply a terrible disease. Now today I want to talk about what together we can do to get there. I'm a science journalist, I'm looking at it with a certain viewpoint, but it was a very, very influential speech. And he said... It's a scandal that as a country, we haven't kept pace with it. It's as though we've been in a sort of collective denial. We've basically neglected dementia This is a national scandal, a national crisis. We need to do something about it. He actually put in place a number of measures which are beginning to show fruit. In 2013, he convened a special summit of the G8 and set out a challenge to the world to find a 
drug or a cure for dementia by 2025. Now, we're approaching that and it's not looking like we're going to have a cure in the next three years. But that kind of push makes a difference. I mean, scientists compare it to Richard Nixon in the 1970s with his war on cancer. Cameron also created a number of structures which hadn't existed before. He created the Dementia Research Institute in the UK, the Dementia Discovery Fund, run by Kate Bingham, who went on to run the vaccine task force during the pandemic. That fund is really interesting because they are investing in really novel approaches that are coming out of universities and the key is that if any of these start to show promise they help them get into clinical trials create companies to make sure that they're not just stuck in labs now this was all set up originally under the Cameron Premiership, but in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto, Boris Johnson promised a dementia moonshot. I'm not totally sure whether that word is his, but it sounds characteristic. I think it might have been Matt Hancock who actually coined the phrase. We're going to double the funding for dementia research, but more importantly, we're going to bring together what we're calling a moonshot uh, goal, a national mission to, to, to galvanise the research community. What actual difference from what Cameron had already set up did the promise of the moonshot actually make? Well, so far, nothing. One thing Cameron did was massively increase funding. When the coalition started, Dementia had about £28 million a year in funding in 2010. And in the event, it actually got close to £100 million by the time he left office. Now, since then, it's fallen to £75 million a year. The Department of Health recently confirmed to me that that will not increase. So, so much for a dementia moonshot is actually come down. Right, OK. So it's what kind of more dementia satellite in orbit? Yeah, it's fizzled out, certainly. Now, you interviewed David Cameron for this story. David, can you just say your OK, name? Uh, one, two, three, four, five. Is that right? I turn the microphone towards me a bit or move around a bit. He doesn't actually do many interviews since he left Downing Street six years ago. Uh, he was keen to do this one, though. Yes. I've been president of Alzheimer's Research now for five years. Uh, I was surprised, actually. I put in a uh, hopeful request to interview him. But he's had a tough year. A former Prime Minister under fire. After weeks of silence, David Cameron, who himself in 2010 warned about lobbying, has admitted he shouldn't have emailed or texted Cabinet Ministers on behalf of Greensill Capital. He's had the Greensill scandal hanging over him, which my newspaper was pretty instrumental in covering. It sure was. The government has ordered an independent inquiry into the lobbying work by former Prime Minister David Cameron. Mr Cameron, who has insisted he has not broken any lobbying rules, did say that he should have contacted ministers through, quote, formal channels. This is a painful day. I wasn't hopeful that he would say yes, but to his credit, he um, doesn't seem to have borne a grudge and was very quick to say yes. Obviously, last year was a difficult year, um, uh, and I need to get over that. Um, but I think the, the the mixture of philanthropy, 
on the one hand and some some business things um, is 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 the sort of approach I'm going to take. I'm fascinated by what is what it's like being a former prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of things about not being prime minister that you miss because, of course, it's the greatest privilege and the ability to, you know, strategize and get things done about things that really matter is 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 the most wonderful and satisfying job in the world. Uh, there are obviously some bits of the job you you don't miss at all. Still, on a Wednesday morning, I can wake up and. Think, oh, thank God I'm not doing Prime Minister's questions. <laughs> um, Ten years ago, almost exactly well, as of next yeah. month, you launched your Dementia Challenge. You said there was a quiet crisis. Talk to me about why you felt so passionately about solving this problem. Yeah, I mean, it came from really sort of a couple of miles away from where we're sitting, which I was visiting residential and nursing homes in my constituency. And just every time I went to one, you could see they were getting bigger and bigger. There were more and more people with dementia. And I remember there were particular scenes of, you know, children visiting their parents and the parents not recognizing the children. Mm. And this just sense that people were slipping into this world of darkness. And it was a problem that getting worse and worse. And then I think it was learning, and it was something I sort of learned myself and I should have known, but I didn't, that, you know, dementia wasn't part of ageing. It was caused by diseases of the brain. So what did he make of how far we've got in the last 10 years since he made that speech? I mean, does he regard it as having been a failure or does he hold out some hope? I would say he was hopeful on balance. If this is a marathon race, hmm. with cancer, we're probably sort of, you know, 21, 22 miles into the race. And we can see, yeah. we've, got a, we've got very hard miles to go, but we can see the finishing line. With, with dementia, we're, we're several miles into the race. We're definitely making progress. We know we're going to finish it. We will solve this. It is diseases of the brain. We, we've cracked other diseases. We'll, we'll crack this, but we've got further to go. Boris Johnson came and stood on the steps of Downing Street and said, we have a plan. Yeah. Then he came up with a moonshot. Since then, nothing's happened. Yeah. The funding that you doubled, which he promised to double it's, it's again. slipped back again. It slipped yeah. back. Yeah. Not all the way back, but it has slipped back. No, I think, you know, I said I didn't want to... Um, get involved in political controversy. But, you know, the government did make a promise in the manifesto to um, further double dementia research. And, you know, I really hope they will achieve that. He admitted we probably won't hit the 2025 target. He said that would be a stretch now. OK, 2025 is looking challenging, but there's a lot of activity underway. And I don't think it's a... I think it's a believable and achievable goal to come up with that magical statin for the brain as opposed to statin for the heart. Did he have personal experience in the family of dementia? He's always said this was an interest that was sparked by his work as a constituency MP. And I said to him... But every MP will know about this issue. Um, why were you so passionate about it? Well, I didn't... At that time, I didn't have a sort of family interest in it. Actually, subsequently, the... Political has become more personal. My, my mother has a, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. His mother, Mary Cameron, aged 87, has now got Alzheimer's. So he started off without a direct personal interest and now has one. I think a, a lot of people have experienced that since 2012. What did he think would make a difference now? I mean, you've described a situation whereby there was a whole kind of big brouhaha, we're going to get there, we're going to do it. 
etc. All the drugs companies get into a particular line of researching about the causes and possible cures for dementia. They don't work. And then as a little bit as you tell it, most of them get out of it again <laughs> and say, well, That's okay, right. well, that doesn't work, so we'll do something else. What's going to get them back in, or do we not need them back in? Well, one thing that David Cameron said which struck me is that we can't leave this to the pharmaceutical industry. It was one of the reasons I wanted to get so involved, because you know, I don't think the pharmaceutical companies on their own are going to crack this. It is a time where you need governments, you need philanthropy, you need universities, you need research institutions to come together. It's a bit like, if you, you know, think back to AIDS in the 1980s, it looks like there wasn't a cure, and it was only because there was this great philanthropic and government effort that got us closer, that then you, you, you saw more commercial activity take place. So, so I think it's a bit like that. And I think that's right, because I think the difference between now and 10 years ago is that we really appreciate more that it won't be one approach that, that solves this problem. It will be a number of approaches. We're going to need a number of drugs. We're going to need early diagnostics. We're going to need tests. And how do we do that? I mean, if we could draw a direct line between the experience of COVID and dealing with dementia, what you would say is collaboration between universities and companies and not much of an eye on the bottom line. Yes, well, that is true. You know, we've had these huge successes in the vaccines, testing. We've created a diagnostics industry in Britain overnight. You know, all of that's cost billions and billions of pounds. Well, indeed. And, and scientists went to the government over the capacity to do uh, variant sequencing, genetic sequencing, got some money, essentially got it up and running themselves and created an incredible expertise in examining variants with remarkable rapidity. What would be a tragedy is if we threw all that away? The genetic sequencing... That could be used for all kinds of conditions. It could be used for dementia. I think the big thing to try and learn is, you know, the Vaccines Task Force was an absolute triumph. And it wasn't a triumph simply based on a very clever and capable woman, Kate Bingham, and a bunch of money. It was based on her determination to do things differently. Yeah. You know, to bring a different a sense of urgency and different disciplines to how to try out the best treatments, a very direct line into the highest levels of government, dedicated funding to get the job done, a rigorous analysis of what treatments um, were closest to working and what ones weren't, the ability to concertina, uh, shorten decision-making timelines, the ability to recruit people off the internet to take part in trials. There's a whole bunch of things that were done differently, just seems to me we're capable of doing things in months that used to take years and in years that used to take decades. Yeah. And there's so many exciting things going on, it's sort of hard to keep up. You know, we could have pretty soon a blood test that gives you a diagnosis for Alzheimer's. Uh, we can have a genome sequence that will tell you so much more about your susceptibility to this disease or that disease. And mm. I think that, is, that, that, that gives me lots of optimism. Every month there's a new breakthrough in genetics. Just last week there was 42 new genes discovered which contribute to Alzheimer's. And it's that which I think will make a real difference 
for dementia in the end. But we need to keep that going. And there's a real move at the moment to kind of get on with the new normal, live with COVID, scale back. But the risk is that we waste all that investment that's been made over the last two years and we lose all that. So let's not do that, huh? Quite. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, Sunday Times science editor Ben Spencer and former BBC radio reporter Willie Gilder. You can find all of Ben's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers were James Shield and Katie Tarrant. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. <laughs>